Welcome to the Alcohol Tipping Point. I'm your host, Debbie Maisner, and today we have Matthew Ward on the show. He is the creator of A Life Recovered, and he's here to share his story and any advice, tips he has for you. So welcome to the show, Matthew, or do you go by Matt? Uh, yeah, Matt's fine. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. So you're calling from San Diego. Mm-hmm. And you, um, why don't you just introduce yourself and share about why you are on this journey? So, yeah, my name is Matt. Um, I'm in recovery uh, from addiction, all mind altering substances, but alcohol was my foundation for sure. Um, like I said, you know, I live in San Diego, California. Uh, I was born and raised on the East Coast. I was at, well, I was actually adopted um, from Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas when I was very young. Um, my parents adopted me and I was raised and grew up in Connecticut. Um, my, my mother was just not able to conceive and so they adopted me and then she was able to have my brother and my sister. Um, so I'm the only one adopted in my family. I grew up out there. Um, went through a lot of uh, a lot of trials and tribulations out there. Um, eventually joined the military, and that didn't go well. I, I met um, an unfortunate end with there, obviously due to due to drugs and alcohol. Um, and now I've stayed out here because I met my wife. Um, and you know, I'm I'm a little over a year sober now. That's that's a general overview of of kind of where I've come from, but. Yeah. Right. So kind of an interesting story for you to start out adopted into a family and then having biological children follow that. You you hear that a lot, it seems like. And yeah, you know, whenever I've been so I've been to several rehabs and detoxes and whenever I've gone, they always ask me, you know, what was the um, what was the part in your life or what happened early in your childhood that made you addicted or that turned you into loving mind altering substances? And for me, I can't, I don't know what that is. You know, they tried to dig deep and have me find this trauma and stuff like that. And I just don't have it. Um, the reality is I grew up with two loving parents who are still married. Um, they were very supportive. Um, I had every opportunity to succeed growing up and, um, you know, at 16 years old, I started smoking weed and I started drinking a little bit and it was kind of casual at first. I grew up in a very nice area in, in Connecticut. Um, you know, had, had everything, had everything a kid would want for sure. Um, and I just, you know, I had a very easy introduction into this stuff partying, smoking at the woods at football games, you know, kind of sneaking, but nothing crazy, you know, um, no violence in the household, no, nothing like that. You know, I, I, it was, it was great, you know, and then, um, I ended up going to, uh, prep school. I went to Trinity Pauling school in upstate New York. I had an opportunity to go there after I, I did a couple years at public high school, um, and, you know, I wasn't very motivated. I was kind of the person that liked, I liked to appeal to every type of crowd, whether it was, um, you know, the, the, the jocks, the geeks, whoever, whoever it may be. I, I liked hanging out with everybody. And I kind of gave a piece of myself to everyone. And I kind of 
left nothing for myself. I was just kind of, um, I had a serious and I've always had serious FOMO, the fear of missing out, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and my parents saw my grades struggling because of this and they offered me an option to go to, to prep school, which was, it was a double-edged sword for me because while I got a great education and I found out that I worked best with structure, I also, I was living there, it was a boarding school and I was introduced to a lot of really hard drugs. Um, and that's kind of where I started my, um, managing of getting high and trying to do life the best that I could. So I was getting good grades. Things were going well. I was about to get into a great college after I repeated my junior year and did senior year there. So I ended up doing five years of high school and I got into the university of Rhode Island. And now when you get to college, all the, the love for drugs. And by this time I was doing, uh, you know, I was, I was drinking a lot and I was doing, uh, ketamine, cocaine. Um, and I really liked the uppers. I wasn't into the downers or opiates. Um, but alcohol was definitely my foundation for sure. That was something that was uh, readily available and it was socially acceptable. So that was the easiest way for me to get my fix legally. Um, and unfortunately, when I went to college, my my addiction carried with me. I had started to become addicted, but I regarded it as a phase still because it was college. This is what we're doing. I'm a freshman at college. I mean, this is normal. Um, so my addictions carried with me, but I lost the structure from the prep school. So that was just it completely fell apart. You know, I was out of college within two years Um and I came back home and back home, I, I dove off the deep end into cocaine and alcohol more. Um, you know, I had crashed cars along the way. I had already given up my college education. You know, my dad still jokes with me that I, I owe him a hundred thousand dollars when I get a chance, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, but I, uh, you know, I ended up from there, I ended up joining the military. Um, I knew that the structured environment was going to be good for me. And I figured that was something I was going to do. So I joined the military and I, I was in the military for seven years. Um, and I was actively all, all my cases legally, you know, I, I had an open NCIS case, um, in the military, uh, drug related, all that stuff has been settled. So I can openly talk about it now. Um, I was discharged in 2018 with an other than honorable discharge from the military. I was fully addicted at this point uh, to cocaine and methamphetamine. I was introduced to meth out here on the West Coast. Um, And yeah, I I lost my career, you know, and it was I'm surprised I lasted as long as I did. Um, Seven years in active addiction of hiding, you know, in the military, drugs are zero tolerance. Mm -hmm. And I was doing drugs the whole time I was in. So for me, I had to get very good, and I did get very good at hiding, manipulating, lying, and being very secretive to not only my branch of service, the Navy, but to those around me, coworkers, girlfriend at the time, things like that. Um, so I, you know, regardless of having my good upbringing and great parents and stuff, I turned into a pretty bad guy, a guy who was very selfish, um, completely ran off self-will every day and was, um, didn't care who I hurt, you know? Um, and you know, I was discharged and I, I got out of the military with an other than honorable, like I said, and 
the way that a lot of people get confused, they assume that if you don't get an honorable discharge, it's automatically a dishonorable, which that's not the case. So the way it goes is you either get an honorable or you can get a medical discharge or you can get a general discharge or you can get a other than honorable discharge or a bad conduct discharge and then a dishonorable. Mm. So those are the kind of the way it works. So drugs are automatic other than honorable discharge and anything worse than a general discharge, you get no benefits. And okay. a dishonorable, dis, dishonorable discharge, people use that term very casually, I think, uh, civilians, because they just don't know, which is fine. But dishonorable discharges are, are for like rape, treason, weapons trafficking, uh, major violations overseas in the Middle East, like things like that. Um, drugs are an automatic other than honorable. You get processed out because it's just standard zero tolerance. And I knew that rule the entire time. You know, I was always flirting with that line when I walked in there for our morning musters. And I, I, I lived, you know, in my program now of recovery, you know, I, I work AA, I work the 12 steps. It doesn't work for everyone, but it works for me. Mm-hmm. No one else was giving me a better program for living, um, but they did. And that's how I've been successful. So that's what I do. And in that, you know, they part of that program is looking at your fears. And I always regarded fear as like, when I grew up, I was afraid of the dark, you know, um, fear of maybe getting in an accident when you're on the highway or things like that. And really, I didn't know that I was actually running off fear and I was living in fear because people talk about how they were functional and they're a functioning alcoholic or a functioning addict. But if I'm living in fear every day, when I go to work of breathalyzers or urinalysis, I don't think that's functioning. I think you're just trying to manage I don't see how that's functional at all. Um, in my perspective, I don't think I was ever functioning. I think I was managing. And I think that was something important for me to realize that, you know, I was living in fear and I had, a, <laughs> I just, well, I wasn't living. I, it was just day by day to get my fix and hopefully have my cake and eat it too. And unfortunately I got to a crossroads where when I left the military, my family was cut me off as well. You know, my parents couldn't watch me kill myself anymore. I had to go. I was at a crossroads, you know, and everybody hits that. Everybody hits that crossroads. Some people don't realize it. Some people do. But everybody hits that point where you can only have one thing or the other. You know, for a long time, I was able to, like I said, have my cake and eat it, too. I was able to have the booze, have the drugs and still have the relationships and the roof over my head and things like that. And then all of a sudden I had to choose one or the other. And for a little while, I chose mind-altering substances. I chose alcohol. I chose meth. You know, I started shooting meth um, when I was out in East County, San Diego, living on my own, bouncing around halfway house to halfway house just to survive. After I got out of the military, they kicked me out with nothing. I had nothing. Um, and I had everything. <laughs> yeah. You know, I had, I had everything. I lost the apartment. I lost the car. I lost my license because of two DUIs in one month. Um, one of them, I was busted with a lot of cocaine and I almost did a lengthy prison sentence, but the judge let me go with a lot of community service and, and promises to do all this stuff. And, and I started to do a little bit, you know, I'll skip through all the ugly stuff because a lot of us experience that and everybody knows the war stories, but I'm, I'm kind of solution based. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll tell you, I did lose everything. I had nothing, but I had nothing but a bag of clothes and a set of golf clubs, <laughs> Um, my golf, my dad and I used to golf when we were young and 
he sent me out my golf clubs and it get it gets me emotional when I talk about it, but yeah. it was the one thing I couldn't sell, you know? Yeah. So, um, do you still have yeah, those golf so, clubs? I do. I still have it's the one thing I kept. Yeah. Um, the one thing I kept, I just couldn't bring myself to do that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as, as, as far down the scale as I went, um, <clears throat> there was hope, you know? Yeah. And I met a girl, uh, I had pushed everybody out of my life at that point, but, uh, I met a girl in my addiction. Her name is Janet. She's now my wife. Um, and she saw, she saw, you know, I mean, living at the halfway house for a bit, she saw that I was able to have a day here and a, or a day there of sobriety, you know, and a little bit, sometimes weeks at a time. And, you know, I, I would get kicked out of sober living, have to go to another or, you know, and finally, you know, she said, this isn't working. Why don't you move in with me? And um, that was a big, that was a big risk on her part. Mm-hmm. We were not dating at the time. Um, I had met her offline <laughs> on a dating app, you know, and I was out just lying to women and, and manipulating and telling them this wonderful story of how I was this great military guy. And it was all, it was all bullshit. It was all, it was all fake. And with her, I, I told her the truth. It was our time spent together was just sitting down and having conversation. You know, it was just one of those things where like we had met and we just, it was just amazing to talk to this person. She was in my addiction and the craziness and the psychosis from the drugs um, she was the only normal thing I had going and it was like, that was it. She was the only normal piece of my entire day. And some days she wouldn't be around me, but some days when she did, you know, she, she eventually offered me to stay with her and, and I, I stayed with her. I had a, I had some time in sobriety and I said, you know, I need to go back to rehab and get this foundation again. Cause in the military I had been introduced to AA. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always, so I went to rehab four times I went twice in the military when I was active duty and all of the, all of the programs I went to were AA based. They were Mm -hmm. 12 step based. And so they introduced me to AA and, um, I liked AA, you know, like the people there looked genuinely happy, you know? And when I sat around, when I sat in those rooms, I was brand new. Um, but I was kind of sold on it because these people look genuine. I was like, they can't all be messing with me. You know, they, they have to, there's something going on here that I don't know, you know? And I, and I was easily accepting step one, you know, I am powerless over alcohol. I knew that. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I self-referred in the military at first trying to save my career because I knew I was in deep. I knew I couldn't stop drinking, but I didn't know how to stop. I had no idea how to stop. I couldn't envision a life without alcohol. I mean, it was my best friend. It got me, it got me to talk to women. It got me through the day. It got me, you know, it it just solved everything for me. I couldn't go to family events without a drink. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything or exist throughout the day without having that rush of dopamine, dopamine or that temporary escape from reality. Like I loved it, you know? And, um, yeah, but I ended up going to rehab after I was with Janet, who is now my wife and I had a spiritual experience. I went to rehab in in Anaheim, California. Um, and I was back in AA. Um, and this time I was willing to do a hundred percent of what they said, you know, 
I got a sponsor um, and I started working the steps. And in the past, you know, I kind of bounced around. I did the steps that I wanted to do. Um, I didn't want to do a thorough, um, you know, I didn't want to do a thorough fourth step and take an inventory of myself because that stuff's rough. I don't want to look at myself. I want to, I still wanted to keep my ego alive and I didn't really want to practice humility. So that's why I failed in the past. And this time I looked at all that stuff, you know, and I, I found success. Um, I came back from 58 days of treatment inpatient. Um, I had a new outlook. I had a spiritual experience there where, um, during a yoga session, um, you know, and I regarded spiritual experiences as only for those who, you know, take vows of silence or are, you know, mm-hmm. monks or people that live among mountaintops in the mist and stuff like that. Yeah. I didn't realize that that stuff was, um, available to me, um, with a clear mind. I didn't realize that I was able to have an experience like that. And, uh, and I did. And I realized that if I put a hundred percent into this thing, I'll probably get a hundred percent results because I had put a hundred percent thing into things in the past and I had good results. You know, I just, I lost my way in a lot of things. I, I didn't follow through and this time I was ready to follow through, you know, and I came out of there and in 2020, you know, I got married to this girl. She's my wife. And, um, I got a great job. I, I currently work for Hall state in the insurance industry and it was a lot of work to bounce back from all that stuff. You know, I had those arrests and that legal trouble in 2018. So my boss took a real chance on me here at my job. You know, he took a complete gamble. I mean, I, I had a serious criminal record, but I was able to get a job here because I had no financial crimes. Um, you know, and now I run the sales department here. You know, I'm, I'm the leading force of the company. I, I took us to 12, top 12% in the nation. You know what I mean? So like I was always capable of this stuff, but I, I couldn't do it. I was not, I was not able to do any of this stuff unless I got sober. And unfortunately though, the, my, my alcohol issues didn't end there. You know, I, I relapsed on September 17th, 2020. I had good money coming in. We were looking at buying a home. Um, you know, I had just gotten married in July I mean, I was only married Mm -hmm. for a couple months and her and I both thought this was behind me. I had started the Life Recovered page in July, 2020, which we'll get to. Mm -hmm. Um, and I relapsed, um, and I relapsed on a mind altering substance. It wasn't alcohol or drugs. It was just a household product. And it was a computer error that I saw at her computer and I was looking at it for weeks knowing that that air, if I hit it, I could get high off that. And I just disregarded it because I told myself that I was stronger than that. And I work a program and I talk to people on social media and I'm this guy and my ego was a little bit inflated. And my book was collecting dust and my big book was collecting dust. And, um, and I hit it one day and it, 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 it doesn't have to be a drug or a drink or anything like that that can take me back to where I was. A can of air Mm -hmm. took me back to lying, manipulating, calling out of work, not telling her the truth, stealing. I went and stole these cans of air from Office Depot so I could get high. And I completely had the money to pay for them, but I didn't want to. I wanted to steal them, you know. And I just, I got caught and I got back into the rooms of AA after two days. And now I've just hit a year sober again and 
um, on September 17th. So I'm just a little over 13 months again. And that takes me to today with you. Well, congratulations. Thank you. It's been a, a long road and journey for you. And it, it's so great that you found things that work for you and people that believe in you and community and, and all those different aspects. But most mm-hmm. importantly, like you found something within you to, to be strong and now be helping others. Yes. So tell me about A Life Recovered and, and why you started that and what, what that's about. So I started A Life Recovered on Instagram in July of 2020, right before I got married. And, um, you know, we were, what, like four or five months into the pandemic at that point. And I had seen a lot of my friends relapsing, um, people dealing with domestic violence because of lockdown and suicidal ideations and one guy I knew that had killed himself and things just looked kind of bleak. We didn't kind of know when we were going to come out of this thing. And I was so gung ho on sobriety that I was like, you know what? And I was locked up in my house. I was like, this is really my only outlet. I mean, I was working out from home. I was working from home. I was locked in a house and (laughs) I mean, quite literally we couldn't leave at one point, you know? (laughs) Um, So I started this page, A Life Recovered, to provide a platform where people could go and share their stories on whatever struggle that they go through. So most of the stories on, and it was hard at first, you know, because I had 25 followers or 30 followers and I was asking people to share their story and they're like, dude, I don't even know you. You have a small following. Like you're I don't know. I'm not sharing my personal stuff with you. So it was really hard to get off the ground. So I had to share stories originally that were people that I knew, friends from the Navy. Um, but they were, they're really good. They're unbelievable stories. Like some of the very beginning ones, if people, if anybody wants to go check it out, some of the very beginning stories were, were wild. You know, this girl that almost died because of coronavirus and had lost her father and another guy who tried to kill himself in the Navy. I mean, these unbelievable stories of people coming out of these really, um, really dark places, you know, and it just kind of took on a life of its own. Um, most of the stories are addiction related people getting sober from drugs or alcohol. Um, but there's some other stuff scattered in, you know, I, I support anybody that's overcome any struggle, you know what I mean? And, and it's a place where people can go and see that they're not alone and, Um, you know, there's a lot of pages like it, but one thing I pride myself on is having authentic stories and and individual stories and allowing people to have their 24 hour period on this page to where people can go and only see their story, you know, and that's, everybody gets their day. And I think that's important. And some people that, you know, I, sometimes I have to fish for stories because I don't get a lot sent to me. Sometimes, sometimes I get a lot sent to me and I have to post an order of receiving to be fair to everyone. And, Um, you know, sometimes people tell me, well, I only have three weeks sober, so I I don't really, I don't think I am, I shouldn't really be sharing my story yet. And that's, I, you know, I have to respect what they say, but in my mind, I'm kind of, I'm, I, I think it's silly because when I had three or four days sober, I, I didn't know how I could do this thing. I didn't think it was possible. Three weeks clean to me seemed absolutely ridiculous 
ridiculous to be able to attain and be able to achieve. So, you know, I'm a firm believer that someone with a year can help someone with 10 months and someone with six months can help someone with four months and two weeks can help someone with two days. You know what I mean? That's just what I believe. Um, I think it's true and I've seen it work miracles. Um, and I, 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 I think that the people on my page and the people that are going to share in the future are absolute miracles because I know how hard it is to come out of this thing. Took me a long time. Took me 15 years of of misery to be able to come out of this thing. So anybody with a little bit of time, or you know, getting away and breaking ties with that spouse that's abusive or verbally abusive or things like that, I think is is a miracle. It takes a lot of strength and hard work, and I want people to see those stories. Yeah, it's so important that we we think when we're vulnerable that we're weak, but it actually makes us stronger. And it's just, you know, breaking the stigma, seeing so many different people from different walks of life, and um, but just all being able to overcome. Right. It's beautiful. What, what's yeah. been... Um, most surprising about the page and the stories most surprising about the page um hmm. i would say the most surprising thing about the page is the amount of people now that actually want to talk about what happened to them and the amount of trust that they put in me to share their story um, some of the men on here have shared stories with me about them getting sexually assaulted by other men. Um, and they've never told anyone and they open up to me about it. And I ask them questions. And sometimes I ask them if I can cry a little bit and ask them more. So I, it builds the story and I can get this stuff out there. So people know that this has happened to them too. And I, it's unbelievable um, I take it very seriously because a lot of the men and women open up to me about serious, like really bad things that happen to them, like really awful things, mm -hmm. like things you hear about it, not even in the news sometimes, you know what I mean? And they trust me to put that stuff out in a manner that is okay with them. And that I, I you know, it, it's just unbelievable what people will share, um, and want to share, you know, um, and how healing it is for them. You know, it was kind of, at first it was like, okay, let's just get some content. And now it's like, I, these people are getting value out of this. And I think that's the most amazing thing is people actually are, they message me back and they're like, Hey, that writing down that part of my life has completely freed me of some of the binds from the past. You know what I mean? Like I get stuff like that and it makes it all worth it. Yeah. Very meaningful. Yeah. Well, what would you, you know, you mentioned that you're solution based and focused. So what, what are some of your top tips for someone wanting to change their addiction? Um, I'd say my number one thing is, um, for me, I had to realize that I didn't really know what's best for Matt Ward anymore. You know, for a long time, I thought I had all the answers. I thought in any given situation on any 24 hour period, I would make the best decision for myself and I know what's good for me. And you can't tell me otherwise because you don't know me. You don't, you're not walking in my shoes. And I had to, I had to accept help from another man 
and women have to accept help from another woman, a woman. Um, and I think trusting that another individual might know what's better for you is one of the first key parts to recovery and being successful at long-term like sobriety or anything, you know, seeking outside help and putting down your will and giving it up to a higher power. Um, and that doesn't have to be anything religious based. You know what I mean? That can just have, have trust in a, in a, in a group that you've attend or, or anything like that, you know? Um, yeah, I think that's the number one thing for me. Um, for sure. And, you know, I think working any sort of program is important, you know, a, a, a program. I, you know, obviously I worked at the 12 steps, but I think, I mean, there's a ton of programs out there that are, that are beneficial to people. You know, some people like the 12 steps, some people like smart recovery, um, you know, the cognitive based stuff. Some people like celebrate recovery, which is very religious based, you know, I've, and I've been to all those meetings. Some people do NA, AA, you know, some people just do therapy or intensive outpatient, uh, but having some sort of program and a little bit of structure in the beginning, I think is key. Um, another very key thing I think is if you're trying to get sober, you have to build a sober network. You know, you're not, you know, it's very hard to be successful when you're surrounded by the same people or the same places or the same things. If you're not, you know, it, in early recovery, I, I may not be able to go to those bars. Um, I may not be able to hang out with that group. I'm not saying that they're bad people, but right now our values and, and our values just don't align right now. So I have to take a step back. I have to remove myself from that. Um, and knowing and actually doing those things, um, I think are crucial, you know, and a lot of people say, a lot of people say, I've noticed on Instagram, a lot of people say how all these people, you know, force, force drinks on them or, you know, all these people at restaurants, you know, they won't let up with trying to offer me alcohol and stuff like that. And like, I haven't had that experience. Anyone I've told that I've, I'm getting sober or I don't drink anymore has been more than supportive. Um, and I think a lot of that stuff we build up in our head that we have to defend sobriety. We have to defend not taking a drink. And I think it's a little bit more simple than that. I think if you're doing the work and I think if you have a program that you work and people you can talk to and, and you're spiritually fit, which means you have values and you're being kind to people and you do more for others than just for yourself. I think if you do that, you don't have to defend sobriety. You could just live. You could just live like that. That's my experience. I don't defend the fact that I don't drink anymore. I just don't drink. And I, that's it. I mean, that that's for me. Those are some of the things that I do that I've, I've have found success at. Yeah. So you said seeking outside help, having trust, working a program, whatever that is for you, anything and from building a network. Yeah. and building a network. Those yeah. are great. You said something earlier that I thought was interesting. And I, I think I've, I've been thinking a lot about lately is, you know, you mentioned like you had a wonderful childhood, no trauma and how people, um, when I say people like professionals had asked like, well, what led to your drinking? Um, I think it, it's important to just distinguish like 
anyone can become addicted. Um, It doesn't matter where you come from, who you are. If you take enough of that substance, you will eventually become addicted. That's how addiction works. And so sometimes when we're like looking for why or the trauma in the past, like sometimes there isn't trauma and And that's okay. You're a nurse. Yes. And I'm a nurse. Yeah, you're a nurse. So we can take this to the (laughs) bank here, people. (laughs) Well, um, but I think, you know, that's one of the, I think people think there's something wrong with them. Um, they think they're broken, um, but it is a very addictive substance that you're taking and it could be anything, you know, it could be gambling, it could be sex, it could be the alcohol, the drugs, but addiction is addiction, you know, that it's that dopamine hit that you go after again and again, and we are all vulnerable and especially, in our world right now where you can get a quick hit of anything, including Instagram, like we are yeah. all vulnerable to addiction. Yeah. I, yes. I totally agree with the social media part. I've been there. Yeah. It's interesting. I've seen a, a few people that are like, you know what? I, I think I need to back off of Instagram or something like, cause I find myself checking you know, oh, who liked this post and who, you know, you, you're, it is kind of a constant hit in your phone is yeah. it, it's positive. It can be positive and like you're using it for very positive things, but it can also just kind of take you back down that track. Right. I agree. What, and then the other thing I thought of too is you, you know, you're, you had quite a struggle and I noticed in some of, uh, the stories that are shared on a life recovered, like not everybody hits rock bottom. Um, like I, I wouldn't say that I hit rock bottom and was more of a gray area drinker. So it's like, you don't have to hit rock bottom to want to change your life and to recognize that, your life could be better without this substance like you. Right. And I, but I also think, I think everybody has, I think everybody hits rock bottom at some point. It's just, there's varying degrees of mm. rock bottom. Yeah. That's, and, and then are, you can go people, lower. <laughs> yeah. That's what I mean. Like some people, I'm a firm believer that you only are willing, you, most people or I should say me, I was only willing to change when I had decided that I was in enough pain, mm-hmm. you know, for me and many others that I know we only change once we have decided that we are in enough pain and we can't go any further with this, you know, cause I, I tried I, every, every other option, every other Avenue. Um, and eventually I was in enough pain to make a change, you know, and that, mm-hmm. and that bottom looks different for everyone. Yeah. You know, Um, for some people that bottom may just be an argument with their spouse for others. It could be, um, you know, suicide attempts or, you know, really, I mean, crazy stuff. There's a story I shared today was a guy that, you know, was in and out of places, was on skid row. And, um, you know, I mean, he, he had a, he had a pretty vicious bottom on a heroin user and, um, it's different for everyone, like you said, totally. So Yeah. 
But I mean, I just love that we are all capable of change. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so how how has your life changed and like your relationships and your family? You know, you mentioned that you had cut off some of or they had cut you off. You know, what is what's your relationships like now? Um, it's funny that you asked that. I actually just got back from visiting the East Coast. I went to Connecticut a few weeks ago for the first time since Christmas of 2016. Wow. Uh, so I hadn't seen my brother in five years. Um, my parents came out and visited me when I was six months sober back before I relapsed. So I hadn't seen them in a couple years. Um, and it was funny, too, because I had my one year of sobriety again on our flight going to Connecticut. One year. And I was back in the air going to see my family. So it was really cool. Um, I got to make amends to my brother. Uh, I got to make amends to some friends from back home. And I have all these people in my life again, you know, and when I make amends to people and I let them know that I'm trying to change my actions, attitude and behavior, some of them tell me, dude, I don't, you know, I've, I've had people tell me, dude, F off, you know, I don't care of what you're doing. You did these things in the past and I don't care to talk to you ever again. And that's okay. Because part of what I have to do is a little bit selfish. I have to keep my side of the street clean, and I have to clean my side of the street in order to maintain long-term recovery. I have to do that stuff. You know, whether they're accepting of it or not, I can only write it as best as I can. And yeah, you're you're entitled to your story, and they are to theirs. Yes, totally. So, um, yeah. What, so what do you see for your future? Um, so I'd say, well, and actually, let me, let me, let me go back to that. Sorry. Um, I just had a customer walk in. We can cut this part out later. <laughs> but um, yeah, so um, I'm currently in school um, right now uh, for psychology and um, the end goal here is to um, pursue uh, addiction counseling, Great. and um, that's my end goal. Uh, I'm in my bachelor's program right now at National University, um, and yeah, that, that I want to I want to do this stuff for a living. You know, um, I love what I do now, and I have a great boss and a great mentor. Um, but that's my goal: is to just to make money by doing what I love and, and do this stuff full time. And I've realized that through the page of life recovered. Yeah. And that that's already so helpful. You're already helping people. Yes. So remind everyone where they can find you. So, yeah. So you can find me at a life recovered on Instagram. Um, my name is Matt Ward, you know, and I'm, I'm in recovery and, uh, would love your support, uh, on the Instagram page. And if you'd love to share your story, feel free to email or reach out anytime. And either way, whether you share or not, I'm always, um, there to talk. I respond to every single message I get. I think that's important and that's something that I stick to. So. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story and, having this page for other people to share their stories. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Attention Idaho and California residents. If you're shopping for a mortgage, contact PacFi. 
a mortgage brokerage with the top wholesale lenders in the nation. They are committed to simplifying the mortgage process, saving you time and money. Call 858-442-7048 or visit pacfi.com. NMLS number 1462943, Equal Housing Lender. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Alcohol Tipping Point. I'm always here for you guys, so please feel free to reach out and talk to me on Instagram at Alcohol Tipping Point and check out my website, alcoholtippingpoint.com. Again, I hope you can use these tips we talked about for the rest of your week. And until then, see you next time.